Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. I actually grew up in public radio. I've been in the field since I was 16. And from the start, I was taught to offer people content that will inform and enlighten. This podcast is dedicated to spreading ideas that speak to the highest part of our listeners rather than the lowest common denominator. If you like what you hear, we're asking for your help please leave us a kind review on iTunes so others can find us. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. They felt that somehow or other we have to... create structures that will mitigate and lessen these threats of of demagoguery, of appealing to the selfish interests of people. How America's founders designed a system they hoped would prevent rabble-rousers from inflaming the passions of democracy. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. President Abraham Lincoln, in his first inaugural address, appealed to our capacity for high-minded ideals and noble action, what he called the better angels of our nature. Yet through history in America and elsewhere, leaders sometimes arise who speak to darker instincts, also dormant in our nature, our capacity for fear and for bigotry. Leaders like the late Joseph McCarthy, the Republican senator from Wisconsin, and George Wallace, the angry Democratic governor of Alabama, who died in 1998. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Wallace, speaking in 1963 in an era of increasing civil rights protections for minorities, he gave voice to the politics of racial resentment. His later campaigns for the presidency drew boisterous crowds of people who felt alienated by the tide of social change. To many, it showed a dark side of our democracy. Well, I think that through the bulk of history until the 18th century, democracy was regarded with a certain amount of skepticism. Gordon Wood is a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. He specializes in the American Revolution, when the founders, including Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, designed the United States, based in part on their reading of the classics. All of the great Greeks that we we like Plato, Aristotle, Thucydides, they all had um, misgivings about democracy. They they didn't like it. Even James Madison uh, has a lot of harsh things to say about democracy. Why didn't they like it? Well, because the people can be strange, behave in strange manners and, and create problems. We acquired a faith in democracy, the kind of faith that Jefferson had, that so suddenly it wasn't just a form of government, it became a faith something we just believed in instinctively. And that comes out of the revolution, and for the next 250 years, we've been living that faith. But I think 
if you go back through history, you'll find that many people had misgivings about that, that the people aren't always right. That they they aren't be, always well-informed. That, well, they're and, not just well-informed. And they aren't always well-intentioned. Yeah, exactly, and that they can end up doing things that are regrettable. And of course, the American system was not intended as a pure democracy subject only to the whims of the people. The United States is a republic in which decisions are made by the people's representatives. The framers of our Constitution were well aware that in direct democracy, public passions could boil over, as often happened in state legislatures in the early days after the Revolution. Was democracy running wild, as they saw it? Uh, excesses of democracy, and that, in that sense is, is, is demagoguery. Now, someone like Patrick Henry was regarded by Jefferson and, uh, and Madison as, as a demagogue because he was playing to the people, uh, playing on their desires and interests without regard to the general interest of the, of the society. That's what they thought of as, as demagoguery. But that suggests a tension between what we today think of as the ideal of democracy and the system that our founders were actually building. Yeah, there is a tension. I mean, Madison faced it this way. He said, uh, if we have too much democracy, conventional wisdom, going back to the ancients, says, well, you've got to have more monarchy, more, more power placed in a, uh, a single person to offset the democracy in a balanced government. Uh, you could go all the way to monarchy, uh, but Ma Madison says, I don't want to go there. I want to stay within a Republican framework, so I want a Republican remedy for Republican ills. Republican ills are majorities running wild. How do you protect minorities in a Republican system which is based on majority rule? That's the problem he faced. It's a problem we've continually faced uh, through our history. And, and uh, Madison is the one who's concerned with minority rights. Now, his minority happens to be one we don't particularly uh, care much about, that is creditors, but the principle that he established, I think, is a good one, that the majority has to be limited in some way in, in a constitution. And in, is that what the Bill of Rights is about, to well, that's part of it, assure the, the protections for the individual? Yeah, how, do you, how do you restrain the majority in a system which is based on majority rule. That was the dilemma Madison faced, and that's why he created the federal government. He said the, the distance of the government uh, from the people, the narrowing of representation. Uh, first House of Representatives for the Congress had only 65 members. That's very small uh, compared to many of the state legislatures had 250. Today, we're up to 435 federal representatives. Right, but that's really very small for a nation of 330 million people. Uh, it's much smaller than the House of Commons. Uh, the idea was, in Madison's mind, that the fewer the representatives, the better caliber person. Uh, he actually thought in those terms. For example, as the uh, North Carolina legislature had 232 people. but. The congressional representation would be only five, but he figured that there were only five college graduates in the state of North Carolina. They're the ones who are apt to get into the federal Congress, and they would be more enlightened, more liberal, 
more liberal in the 18th century term, more educated in, in the liberal arts. So this philosophy really favors what today we would think of as the elites. Yes, definitely. It's an elite. They didn't use that term yet. It wasn't coined. But that's what they're trying to do. That's what Madison was trying to do with the, with the Constitution, create a system which would result in more enlightened people. If you read the Federalist Papers, they're full of code words. He talks about parochial, narrow-minded, illiberal men are dominating the state legislatures. We've got to create a system where we have a better caliber person uh, making the decisions, and that was the federal system. As opposed to people who are primarily concerned with self-interest? Right, exactly, that there are too many self-interested demagogic types in the states who are passing all of this selfish, self-interested legislation. That's from his point of view. And he felt that this is, we gotta slow this down, we gotta somehow filter the system in such a way, create filters that will keep out these demagogic types. Because he was fearing that it would kind of pollute our politics? It would destroy republicanism eventually. He said the stakes are very high. If we can't stop these excesses of democracy, then republicanism will be tainted uh, people will go towards monarchy. And there was lots of talk of monarchy in the 1780s. Now, as we... Talk, talk of it in that maybe we need to revert to exactly. that. Exactly. We should revert to it that this is a failure. Just like the English in the 17th century, it's not going to work. We better go back to a strong leader, uh, a strong man. Gordon Wood, now Brown Professor of History Emeritus, has chronicled the formative days of our republic in his rich histories, including Empire of Liberty and the radicalism of the American Revolution. One of the paradoxes is that the South, uh, and Madison's an exception, but the South tends to be much more in favor of democracy and, and, uh, and, and uh, liberal uh, rights than, than, than New England, because they had... Uh, relatively few threats from democracy. Jefferson is the ultimate Democrat, but he never lost an election in his life. Uh, he didn't fear the people the way, uh, the way Northerners did, like John Adams, for example. So this was partly a fear of the people? Definitely, but, they, but not so much that they wanted to repudiate the people. They, they, they felt that um, somehow or other we have to s stay within a Republican framework based on the people's electoral process, but somehow create uh, structures that will mitigate and lessen these threats of, of demagoguery, of appealing to the selfish interests of people. Um, Madison's uh, expanded sphere of government, uh, where he's going to have a large uh, arena for politics, he felt that the factional interests will negate one another collide and negate one another, and that would be an advantage, just the scale of the, of the government. Um, and that would have the effect of sort of evening things out a bit? I think he, he felt that you'd, that you'd prevent narrow-minded interests from taking control. Uh, the conventional wisdom was that republics had to be small in size because they needed homogeneity. He turns that on its head and says, no, no, that's wrong. He, it's based on an essay he read of, of David Hume's said, well, no, it actually works better if you expand the sphere of government because then the narrow interests can't, can't uh, get together to create a majority. And this will 
work in the republic's favor if you enlarge the sphere of, of politics. And that was part of his plan. The American colonists asserted their Declaration of Independence in 1776, but the U.S. Constitution wasn't adopted for another 11 years. In the intervening period, the architects of America devised safeguards to prevent a demagogue from hijacking their risky experiment in democracy. The Bill of Rights became very important, although Madison was initially opposed to them, but once he came around, he became the leader in passing those rights. That helped to protect uh, minorities. But the biggest change was, was the strong executive, the presidency. Uh, we know how strong that that president is. Article 2 is kind of vague, but our presidents have taken advantage of it over the last two centuries and have enlarged the president's power. But uh, at the time, in 1789, when Washington uh, took over, they saw him as a kind of quasi-monarch. Uh, he was going to be like a king. And, uh, because he engendered such respect from such respect, all parties. But also that the presidency was latently powerful, and so they've elected a kind of George the, the first uh, in place of George III. And uh, many people uh, saw his inauguration as a coronation. Uh, people said, long live George Washington. He was so uptight about this. He didn't want to be that kind of, play that kind of role. Although he wanted authority and he certainly kept his distance and he was concerned that, that he uh, be respected, that the office be respected, he certainly did not want uh, to be a, thought of as a monarch. Because authoritarian rule by the King of England was what the colonists had broken away from. In framing the new government, the founders carefully constructed a constitutional system of checks and balances to moderate the impassioned forces that sometimes erupt in democracy. The judiciary would act independently, and freedom of the press was guaranteed. They have a, a strong president who has a veto power. They have a Senate, which is elected only every six years. Uh, that, that was very, I mean, uh, annual elections were common. Uh, so every six years was a stabilizing effect? Yeah, you'd stabilize the, that, that upper house. And then the, the House of Representatives is going to be elected every two years, which now, of course, seems too soon. But in those days, that seemed to be a long time because they, the whole idea was... Well, uh, that annual elections was, was a way of keeping the, the government close to the people. If you had to, every year, had to have a new election. So uh, these were devices. Uh, the fewness, the, 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 the few representatives you had, that, that was a very, only 65 for, for a population of 4 million. That seemed, the, that was smaller than any of the state legislatures. So here you are creating a body that's going to be 65 for 4 million people when Massachusetts had maybe 500,000 people, and it's got a bigger legislature than, than the federal one. And how does few representatives have an effect of discouraging the emergence of a demagogue? Well, if fewer, the larger the representation, the more apt you are to have people who are not qualified, as would be the argument they would have made. The narrower the representation, the better caliber person. That's the rationale they have. Uh, it didn't always work that way, uh, but it probably uh, works even today uh, in the same way.
We are examining protections from demagoguery built into our constitutional system by the founders of the United States. We're talking with one of America's most distinguished historians, Gordon Wood of Brown University, winner of the Pulitzer Prize. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more and to download audio or obtain copies of this segment, Demagogues, please visit humanmedia.org. Demagogues historically have trafficked in hatred, fear, and bigotry. When they occupy power, it's often in the mode of an authoritarian. Their instinct is for the opposite of democracy. Historian Gordon Wood. You can go back and look at demagogues. I mean, what you had in Germany and Italy uh, was the consequences of World War I, um, an angry populace which was actually mistreated in some respects by the, uh, by the elites, including the United States government, uh, that created a, a, an unbelievably uh, unstable situation in, in uh, Weimar Germany that bred the, the Hitler and, and Mussolini too. Uh, so you have certain conditions. Wars are, uh, are unhealthy for any population, not just simply because of the, the killing that goes on, but the consequences of the war lead to a breakdown in all kinds of institutions. Uh, in, in part, the economic uh, impact of having invested right, economic in economic and, and a whole, the whole. So that you, you could imagine, I mean, the, the, the ancients talked about this. The classical literature is full of, of um, discussions of when do you have demagogues. Cicero is full, you know, concerned always about that. How, could, how do you prevent this from happening? Uh, and, and of course, and one man's demagogue is another man's democrat. How much does playing to the public's prejudices feed into the ability of a demagogue to take and maintain power? Well, I we, we certainly saw that in Germany in the 30s. Yes, yes. No, no I, I think that, that's true. You, the, the demagogue, if he's good, uh, is going to pick out those things which are in the populist's mind and, and exploit it. I mean, that's, that would be the definition, I suppose, of a demagogue using the populace and its prejudices, its interests to acquire power so he can do something. And of course he was supported by lots of people at the outset because he was, you know, as they say, he was building the Autobahn, he was creating the Volkswagen bug. I mean, lots of things that people said, well, this is great, this is, he's accomplishing things. And of course, employment went up um, and the, the German uh, economy was booming by the mid-30s. Until, of course, everything came crashing down. Yeah, yeah, until he went into the war. Right. The Germans hadn't had really any experience with democracy. I mean, t 10 years of the 20s, it's not enough. They had been a, a monarchy and, and, and really a very uh, authoritarian government uh, for, the, for the, their previous history. They had no, no experience. We've had a long experience with democracy. And that includes our vibrant popular culture, which thrives on free expression, most vividly symbolized by the World Wide Web. There are some legal restrictions on free speech. You can't recklessly shout fire in a crowded theater or libel someone. 
But for the most part, 21st century American democracy is relatively unregulated. Gordon Wood. You're not going to get the government coming in and, and limiting you. It's going to be uh, the culture as a whole. And uh, that probably is a good thing to some extent because otherwise you'd have people... Now, that I think is one of the dangers, just from my own personal view of, of social media, it is allowing uh, people to say things that uh, 50, 60, or even 15 years ago they wouldn't have said. They're able to throw these ideas out in the, in the media uh, and you've got a lot of kooky things flying around. Without checks and balances. Exactly. There's no institute, there's no uh, funneling and, and editing, uh, controlling opinion. Um, newspapers do that. They control things. Radio, organized TV, but the social media is just a wild, anarchical kind of expressions of opinion that are getting reported, and it turns out to be kind of scary the opinions that people have. Some of it very unfounded. That's right. I mean, it's just crazy. Because, and that, um, that, that's democracy of a, you know, that's atomization of, of, of the society. It's not a healthy thing. You need things to be controlled and, and institutionalized to keep your democracy uh, viable. Just everybody screaming uh, as individuals is, is a little scary. That sounds to me like a mob scene. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it is a kind of mob scene we're having in the An electronic media. mob right, scene. Right, exactly. It adds to the vulgarization of the culture that I think has been going on steadily for at least 60 years, uh, and I don't think it's just, Trump is, is the result of, of a lots of incremental changes that have been taking place. I, I think, just think in terms of, of, of the language expressed in movies now, that you, now we had control, now control of that, and people thought that was terrible, but the opposite has happened, so that uh, kids see so you mean an opposite kind of tyranny? Oh, well, in the sense that everything is realistic, so you're going to have people talking the way they do. I mean, I was in the Army, I, in the Air Force. I know what, what guys are like, and every other word would be uh, the F word. Uh, that's now into the films that kids watch, and it becomes a kind of corrosive effect on the culture as a whole. That's part of it. How significant a factor do you think the new media environment is in the emergence of Donald Trump? Oh, I think it's very important. I think that's how he got... I'm no expert on the social media, but I think he, his tweeting and his ability to reach large numbers of people outside of the institutionalized press and, and uh, organized uh, uh, media is, is just a source of his, uh, I think, his nomination. He did certainly take advantage of the social media and is taking advantage of it. But it can also be the source of his downfall because he says things that uh, are obviously uh, inappropriate and, and, and stupid that are hurting him. So he, it cuts both ways, and I think in this case it's probably going to cut him down. We don't know. It's another few weeks before the election. Is he a demagogue? Well, he has demagogic tendencies because he... he 
picks out those things. But I think he's speaking from his own prejudices, and it's touching uh, chords with lots of other people. It isn't just uh, the jobs. I think it's the fear of, of uh, immigration. I think that's a very important force. And when he talks about building the wall, which was his initial statement in his primary campaign, uh, it resonated with lots of people who are frightened by uh, the large numbers of immigrants in their area, Spanish-speaking immigrants. Back in 1830, they're frightened by the, uh, the numbers of Irish um, Catholics coming into the country, and they felt, felt that this is dangerous to uh, our way of life, uh, that you can't have a Catholic because they have a, another leader, the Pope, who is not. That kind of fear, um, I mean, I think, r relatively speaking, the fear level is much less today uh, of that sort. Uh, Although the uh, Islamophobia well, that's, is a different that's a factor. terrorist. I mean, the idea of a bomb going off in, in a mall or, or malls, that makes a difference. But I there's think. also religious prejudice in that. Yeah, I guess it spills over. But I think, generally speaking, we've been very good relative to Europe in absorbing Muslim because it, it's very interesting if you compare us to, to France. France is also a state. We based our country on, on Enlightenment values. We're not an ethnicity. We don't have a particular ethnicity that makes you an American. Uh, the French uh, were also based on enlightenment values, life, liberty, and fraternity, and so on. But they had a conception that they must be homogeneous. Everybody must be the same to be a real Republican in France. Well, they can't even tolerate uh, a, a Muslim woman going to the beach and wearing her Muslim clothes. They have to, <laughs> you saw that extraordinary thing that police are forcing her to take her clothes off. Now, we, that just wouldn't happen, I don't think, in America. We, we're, we're a nation of individuals, which is a healthy thing, I think, rather than seeing ourselves as a single nation that's got to be the same, homogeneous. I, I think that's a healthy thing to be a nation of individuals. So we've been much more effective in absorbing immigrants than the Europeans have. Which is also a natural source of tension in American society. We seem to continuously wrestle with how to manage the bubbling cauldron of our melting pot. But even Lincoln, you know, was talking about diversity, and, and he says that's why the founders became important to him. He says because they had this uh, belief in equality, and he says his famous speech and speeches, a number of speeches he gave in 1858 before he became president, uh, he talked about the diversity of the country. He says we've got English, Scottish, uh, Irish, Germans, Spanish, French. Uh, how are we going to hold all these people together? Well, we have this electric cord that reaches back to the founders. And because of their belief in equality, it's as if they are flesh of our flesh and blood of our blood, that they, they, they have something to say to us. He's the one who made the founders important. And uh, I think that's, that's the source of our respect for them, that they created these beliefs that we have, equality being the most important, but liberty, life, equality, pursuit of happiness, uh, which makes us a single people. It's the only thing we've got holding us together are the, these beliefs. Lincoln saw that, and I think that um, that's still very important for our diver 
There's no doubt we have the whole world in the United States. But that is a source of our strength. Historian Gordon Wood, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Empire of Liberty. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Doug Sugarts. Editorial assistance from David Cruz, Ken Rogers, Kathy Graham, and Mark Kilstein. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Short Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. And you can subscribe at iTunes to our free weekly podcast, Humankind on Public Radio. This segment, Demagogues, is Humankind program number 250. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.